0: Welcome to the Payroll Podcast with your host, Nick Day. Find out what it takes to truly discover what it takes to elevate your career within payroll as we meet with the industry leaders who are shaping the industry for tomorrow.
1: Uh, Of course, we've now all heard the delayed autumn statement from our latest Chancellor of the Exchequer, Jeremy Hunt. Now, when the Chancellor of the Exchequer makes a fiscal statement to Parliament, whether it's called a budget, a mini budget, or an autumn statement, I think we can all agree it can be pretty hard to keep track of all the changes that come in both immediately, the changes that are coming soon, and of course the changes that are on the horizon, which is why we have a wonderful panel of experts for you today on today's show, Payroll Question Time. They're here to keep you all in the know, because let's be honest, this year has not been normal. I think the fact we've had four chancellors and three fiscal statements probably confirms that. Now, of course, the challenge now is identifying what if anything, a quasi-quieting proposal, have survived, as well, of course, as understanding the steps that Jeremy Hunt has taken to fill the holes in the government coffers that the ill-fated September plan for growth has helped to create. Well, today we attempt, at least from a payroll related perspective, to summarise these main changes, as well as understand what has survived and what has been cancelled from the September plan. Hence, we have our panel of experts you see in front of you to help you out but of course we won't just be talking about the autumn statement we'll also be helping you all to prepare for all of your festive payroll considerations from gifts to party so i'm going to introduce you to myself my name is nick day i'm the host of the payroll podcast i'm a reward 300 mem- member and award winner and i'm founder of JJ recruitment which is a specialist payroll recruitment firm i've been in the payroll industry now for 20 years i don't know where the time has gone i'm still loving it can't wait to get involved in today's session. You'll be excited to hear that today we will be making a bit of a festive special of today's episode. We're going to be talking about tax concessions on gifts and seasonal workers, holiday pay and more. The autumn statement takeaways. We've got a few hot topics if you find time to get there. And of course, our very own Q&A. I'm delighted to see we already have our first question come in. Uh, hello, my company wishes to gift all employees a £200 John Lewis voucher for Christmas. Am I right in thinking this would be covered by a PSA? and would therefore have no P11D implication. I wonder if you can take that, Richard.
2: Well, yeah, only if it's in a PSA, though, is really the answer, I guess. There's nothing to stop the employer giving a gift and paying the tax and NI on it, um, as long as the rules that are applicable to PSAs are met. So uh, I can't see there being any issue with it. Um, It's uh, all about the availability, et cetera, that would need to be considered.
1: Yeah absolutely agree. Well let's jump into this subject then. I'm going to come back over to you Simon. Perhaps you can give us a little bit of an overview of some of the tax concessions that we can consider as we approach the uh, the festive uh, break.
3: Yeah sure. Well the, the main one we'll be familiar with is social function and some parties. So there is an allowance of £150 and there were some concessions for remote parties that came in for Covid. So potentially there's an element of can you send someone a hamper? Well, if you're doing it as part of the social function and parties, you can. Yes, tax free. And we can all watch each other eat over Zoom. Um, That sort of thing is permitted uh, as long as it didn't exceed the 150 that was allowed. Now, if you're just sending a hamper itself, different because it's not part of your social function and parties. So there is some care there. Um, Going back a little bit to the question you asked um, richard if i may uh, you can't just add things to psas retrospectively you do need to have made the arrangements before so just be careful with that so yep yeah, if it's an annual event it's open to all employees that can be location based so it could be open to all lo- employees in a particular location and it costs no more than 150 pound per head and that per head doesn't just count employees; it counts all attendees. So spouses went along, or children—you can count them in that head count as long as that divides down to no more than £150, uh, and it's—and uh, and that can build up to a number of events through the year, uh, but it can't exceed on the on the consolidated amount as long as it doesn't exceed £150. That's all tax and NI free. Uh, but uh, I say if it hits 151 you've just made it taxable for everybody and uh, you have to P11D or, or um, I'm not sure if you get away with PSA on that you may be able to so just be careful on some of the costs you don't have to report anything to HMRC uh, on the exemption but you do if it's breached you can have multiple events through the year so you can have oh, I don't know Eid or uh, we've had the American celebrations yesterday of uh, um, etc you can have other things but the conglomerate in a tax year can't exceed the 150 uh, just be careful with salary sacrifice arrangements there may have been elements of well actually if you give up 100 pounds we'll run a party and use it that way so we all save a bit of money of course that would be captured by opera a little bit these days and you'd have to tell people how much um, is actually involved and so be careful on those sorts of arrangements but can a Party be run absolutely now on gifts. Now if gifts are from third party and don't exceed, I think, um, just trying to think what the value was and it's escaped my mind. I think it's two hundred and fifty pounds, is it, from memory? It's from a third party that don't relate really to the employment. I don't know. A customer gives you something, uh, etc. There are exemptions there, but if it's from the employer, uh, you're actually going into tax and national insurance sort of territory.
1: So it can't be given
2: Sorry. Go on, Richard. Was saying, Go on, Richard. It can't be given for service uh and it can't be yes. given as bribes. So a, um just really on the back of Simon, just finishing off that one as well, which is where we see some real big issues. The £150 per head is absolutely right for anyone, but that's the total cost. So people forget that they might have their staff come by taxi, they may put them up overnight. All of that stuff is cumulative within the £150, uh, and that's the bit that usually gets ignored when they're thinking, well, you know, we've given them a £150 party, but they've actually spent 270 quid because they bought, hired them a suit and put them in a taxi and all that kind of good stuff as well. So it's really key that employers remember it's the cumulative value of the event, and that can include the cost of the venue. So uh, something that must be thought about. Yeah.
1: There's been a cumulative question here. Now, you may have already answered it, but I'm not a payroll expert. So I'm going to ask the question anyway. And to be fair, the question was posed before we finished Simon's uh, discussion. It says, I know you can gift £50 pounds at Christmas without any tax implications, but is there any exemptions or anything else we can do? Am I right in thinking it's cumulative for the year, or can we give multiples of £50 pounds to an employee in the year without it being a tax benefit? What's the limit on the number of multiples we can give uh, Bearing in mind the vouchers won't be exchangeable for cash and would be for food or petrol.
2: You happy for me to say that or do you want it, Sam?
4: You go ahead, Richard. You got there before me. So go for it.
2: Trivial benefits. Um, Yes, there is no limit to the number of um, trivials that can be received in a year. Um, Maximum of 50 pounds or less can't be exchangeable for cash. Very important caveat. So, number one is it can't be in any way preempted, e.g. contractual or in the terms and conditions that they receive something. Um, so, if it says that you will receive a £50 voucher within the terms and conditions, then that's out straight away. The other key element, especially with vouchers, is um, like um, benefits accumulate. So if you've given a voucher early in the year for something else, a lot of employers have given vouchers for um, life help um, or wellness during the year. If you've given multiple vouchers, again, they accumulate. So you might be given a £50 voucher for Christmas. You may have given them a £50 voucher three months ago towards their heating bill. Vouchers are vouchers are vouchers. And if they go over 50 as cumulative, the whole value becomes taxable. Um, and that's very important what's the
1: maximum value which just so that i'm clear here before well, you it's,
2: come it's past- 50 pounds or less for a form of benefit each in its own right so you could give them a bunch of flowers you can give them a 50 pound voucher you can give them whatever you like but if they're like benefits then the total value of all of them is cumulative for the tax year and that's very key
3: yeah, so what Anything you're suggesting, I think, Richard, is it can't be the same thing all the time. Uh, but you can swap around to different things. So it could be a bottle of champagne. It could be a voucher. It could be, I don't know, a box of chocolates. It could be something else. But um, uh, things like that to fall under the trivial benefit. If it's actually we're going to give you £50 worth of vouchers every week, there's kind of, well, that kind of breaks it.
4: Could, yeah could, and if, a, if i may oh sorry yeah. nick That's we're right. all so eager a, uh, to answer these questions
1: i know i was going to create a scenario based on simon's responses if i'm a client that wants to give um one of my employees a bottle of champagne a box of chocolates and a voucher for 50 pounds all of three separate things within the same month but done separately would that get away through the trivial benefit system because the total
4: value would be greater but individually
1: they're less would that work it
4: could i what i was wanting to say was usually trivial benefits you'd normally see it triggered by an event so the birth of a child christmas easter a marriage a celebration for a divorce perhaps so normally it's triggered by an event it can't be given or provided in recognition of services so for an employer to give a trivial benefit or a gift it cannot be done in recognition of you know Richard you've done an amazing job this month have a bottle of champagne that would not fall into the trivial benefit rules so as long as each gift is 50 pounds or less and it's essentially triggered by an event then I would say that that would be okay there is however a cap for directors of close companies and without looking at the legislation essentially a close company is where there's a um, where it's ran by five or less directors essentially in that case there is a cap of 300 pounds for a tax year so that's okay. the cap you need to be mindful of
1: so a company could because it's an event i'm just throwing it out there and please challenge me if i'm wrong just so we get some clear understanding here a company wants to give every one of their employees a secret santa gift the, the event being christmas and each gift in each box is less than 50 pounds that would that would wash that would be correct. That's good. Okay, I think that covers. Hopefully, that covers that question. Yeah. Uh, I've had one other question but, as well. Just gonna, I'm going to challenge this. We talked a little about PSAs already. Uh, last question that's come in so far. Uh, my company wishes to reimburse all employees for their children's Christmas gifts up to twenty pounds. These are gifts that have been purchased by the employees directly. Can this be included in a PSA? We have a PSA agreement in place for non-cash gifts for flowers and taxis.
4: I, sounds like a living
1: support. Well, the sounds of things, but yeah,
4: I would say no um and the reason for that is one it's cash and two it's actually a pecuniary liability so what that means in layman's terms is if i let's use that example i go and buy my children um, uh, two action men for example i put it on my credit card i've paid that it's my personal private debt essentially if my employer then decides to pay my credit card bill on my behalf or give me any amount of cash, that amount would have to go through the payroll and be liable to tax and national insurance. Because it's earnings, someone has to pay the tax and NI on it. An employer could gross that value up. So, in effect, you might pay £250 gross. So, someone receives the £200 net in their back pocket. But trivial benefits and PSAs would not cover that. It would need to be treated as earnings through the payroll.
1: So the easier way to think about that would be to give everyone a £20 gift at Christmas as a gift to the event. And you can kind of do it with a voucher and they can buy what they want through the voucher system in theory. Yeah.
2: Or the employer would buy two action men for every employee, which would be amazing. Um, (laughs) it 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 flips it from benefit to expense, Nick. So cash is king. Okay, really interesting.
1: So what have what have we not brought up here? We've got a few things here. We've got um we've talked about gifts, uh, annual functions. What about some of the employment laws on parties perhaps getting a little bit out of hand? I know we've discussed this on a an annual episode a year ago, which I remember quite well. Simon, I wonder if you can remember those examples.
3: Um, Well, I'll probably say no, because, um, you know, I I might have been on the meeting, but wasn't listening. I was so nervous. Now, let's talk (laughs) a little bit about then. uh, There are some considerations for employers in relation to um, office parties and other work related social events. Sometimes some untoward things happen at them and there's an element of whose liability is it. And uh, and they brings into play something called vicariously liable. So, actually, the employer could be liable for some of the activity employees do whilst drunk. So, it's an element of uh, uh, knowing. Uh, where liabilities fall and so it's not an element of well we'll just send everybody we'll meet at local pubs of work do have a party and we're not really responsible for action or activity of those that attend actually the employer could be responsible for the actions of those attend so there is an element of distinguishing between social events where there'll probably be vicarious liability and social events that are unlikely to result in vicarious liability so there are differences. So it's just knowing what they are and uh, and also taking reasonable steps. So allowing people to know what the rules of play are and what activity, if it's considered inappropriate, potentially are and how they they should really behave, whether a company's got um, some sort of uh, uh, policies on behavior, alcohol uh, use, drugs, etc., And just considering that completely uh, give compliance. I'm going to say, to get the words out of my mouth, clear policy on the standards of behaviour expected at office parties and what kinds of behaviour are unacceptable. Uh, And at the uh, party itself, there is potentially having someone designated, so they're responsible potentially when issues arise, so they're looking for them and dealing with them and saying, come on, mate, I'm going to pull you aside. Uh, Your behavior needs to um, calm down or it's time you went home. So there is an element of responsibility and take uh, uh, steps to protect harassment, because these are sometimes elements where people get a little bit inhibited. Inhibitions are taken away, they feel more relaxed, and so they may actually go into conduct that wouldn't normally be them. And so it's an element of being prepared to uh, have measures, hopefully nothing of that happens but just being prepared if it does because and then there's an element of if something did happen how does that relate to the employment are they now in a position of gross misconduct um, etc then you're into notice contract arrangements all sorts of things uh, that, those are just the initial thoughts i think those are probably some of the areas that we've covered before nick
1: I, I would agree. Well, I, what I'm going to do is take us back to a uh, to viewer questions. We've got about six or seven that have come in. So we thought festivities may uh, may throw a few things up. I think some of them may have already been answered already, but I'm going to just yeah. run through with them so everyone feels like they've been, been heard and we've got every clarification on everything. Uh, first one here, um, would the um, – I, apologies, I hope I'm reading this correctly because I'm not a payroll person. So would the title of MX be accepted on the FPS to the revenue? I said, capital M, small x, be accepted on the FPS to the revenue.
3: In in relation to the title on the FPS record, absolutely. You can put whatever title you like. So it's, um, I think, 17 characters of any alpha. Uh, I think the first character has to be alpha. Others might even accept numeric, but I can't remember on the title field but um, you don't even have to have any title. So um, the answer is yes. Now, can you have a gender of X on the FPS? The answer is no. So the gender must be male or female. You cannot be gender neutral on the FPS. If you put or left it off, your entire FPS submission would be rejected for everyone, even if it was only one person that was requesting that. So if you attempted to send an FPS file to HMRC with one being some other character than F or M uh, or blank or missing, uh, the entire submission would be rejected. They wouldn't take it for any employee at all. So uh, gender has to be there. Generally, it's not gender of selection either. So there's some limitations there generally is their taxation gender that's required. Saying that, if you put an opposite gender to your actual tax position, would HMRC reject the submission? They wouldn't. They would accept it. However, gender recognition and gender choice are different things, Nick. So I I may be male for tax purposes. I can choose to be nothing or female for hr employment purposes they're two different things two different statutes for gender pay gap reporting i can be something else than my tax gender but for the fps it should really be the tax gender that's the thoughts and that relates to and the title you can be anything you like so i, I could be lady simon parsons if i wish to um Excellent. i can, they wouldn't reject
2: re- regularly i'll regularly i <laughs>
1: I think we've answered the next question, Richard. I'll come to you just for pure clarification. Uh, What about the 150 pound per head exemption for Christmas parties? Does this still stand?
2: Yes, what we spoke about.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think that might be somebody joined slightly after we've gone through that motion. Got one here that says, um, "Good afternoon. My question is IT related." Uh, In fact, I'm going to leave that one for a moment because we've got a subject in this coming up. So let me go to the next question. I will come back to you and Jana. Sorry about that. Uh, But this one actually. Do the provision of benefit portals like Reward Gateway attract any tax implications? Um, I'm
4: guessing, is that like a high street discount type of scenario? Yeah. So uh, we've had questions around this in the past. If it comes under £50, for example, so the provision of an employee using that portal, if that falls under £50, can it be deemed to be a trivial benefit? It then comes along to the question that, well, the, the topic that Richard covered earlier is that it cannot be contractual. So, if it sets out in an employee handbook that every year you get access to this portal, you're implying that that is a contractual obligation that you receive that. So, I would say you'd really need to, we'd need to know a little bit more to be able to give advice, but it would probably be, a taxable benefit, so it'd either go on a P11D, you'd report it through the payroll, or it could be covered as a P11.
1: Okay, great. And the last question I've got here on the Christmas festivities, I think we've got a number of questions here related to holiday pay. So the reason I haven't asked those yet for those waiting, uh, we've got a few grouped together here. We'll get to those in one go. Uh, Last sort of Christmas related question for now on the voucher side of things. If an employee is on benefits and wants a number of £50 vouchers rather than a cost of living bonus, would this be okay?
2: We're falling into the cumulative value again, Nick, that we spoke about earlier on, because we've had this question a lot. They don't right. want a 300 pound bonus because it'll put them over their limit on their on their universal credit um it, it no you, there would be a liability obviously the option for the employer is to gross it up as or gross the vouchers up and pay the tax and then on their behalf but it certainly can't go under trivial if they're going to be multiples yeah but we're well, potentially so, yeah i'm thinking
3: potentially if it was reported as a payroll item, it wouldn't necessarily appear in, as earnings for universal credit purposes, but it is earnings for tax and potentially national insurance. And I insurance.
2: think where they're going, yeah. Simon, is rather than give them a bonus as pay, yes. giving them the vouchers. Use something as else. Correct.
1: Well. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yes. And that's right, where it starts to
3: get because that could fall under opera as well, couldn't it, Richard?
1: Yeah. We've got a lot of questions that I don't want to uh, overlook in relation to holiday pay. We're going to get there. So before we do, let's just quickly run our, uh, our second poll. So it li- just just closes off the session here on on gifts and vouchers and things like that. Second poll is this. What will you be gifting your staff this year? Food hampers, vouchers, other gifts or nothing. So while we're waiting for you to put your fingers on the answer that bo- best corresponds to you, we're going to just ask one of these questions that have come in. Uh, in fact, I think it's the last question relates to festivities that have come in. Um, I'm just gonna make a statement here. It says reward gateway charges a setup fee, then an annual fee uh, were quotes for three to 4K for 200 employees. I think that just links back to the reward gateway piece you were talking about there, Sam. Um, so just, just finish off that point there from, from Emma. Uh, so let's go back into, I'm gonna ask a question here then just for a moment. Um, has anyone listening online changed their holiday pay calculations from the percentage method to the calendar method for their casual workers uh, um slash bank workers if so can they tell me if they are using software to do this or excel slash manual etc hashtag stressed payroller <laughs> oh <laughs> <let them. laughs>
4: you're not the only one that's the only peace of mind i can give you you will not be the only stressed payroller out there <laughs>
1: Who would like to take on the, uh, I guess, the question, I don't know if if, if it's a common thing to change holiday calculations for the percentage method to the calendar method for, for casual workers. Is that is that normal? Is that
2: it's more down to, obviously, the recent case that's uh, solidified the whole principle of averaging. Um, obviously, Leslie Brazell, um against Harper Trust has been the highest profile element of this, um, and it, it's the principle of the employee receiving a 5.6 weeks holiday, which is their right, but secondly, having it calculated against what's stated in the Employment Rights Act. Um, yeah. because there can obviously be quite a large variance. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, and
3: so s- since a- April just think since April twenty twenty, the Employment Rights Act requires a fifty two paid week average excluding zero weeks for Great Britain. It's still twelve weeks in Northern Ireland if unless the Northern Ireland did, individual is contracted under a Great Britain contract so that's changed before that it was a 12-week average which was part of the Brazil case but the 12.07 percent has been declared by the Supreme Court as never being lawful so it was never uh, offered or available under law at all it's always been the averaging method so a number of Uh, companies will have operated the 1207 but many don't and never did and did the 12-week averaging and some still probably still do the 12-week. The challenge with holiday pay is based on uh, when you work and not when you're paid so there are some challenges there but many do offer it and certainly in our pay solutions we do offer a a capability of average holiday pay uh, capability.
1: Okay. Great. And just a quick comment here before we get the poll results, which just says, uh, Simon, thank you. I did look for the specification for the FPS, but I lost the will. Good to know there is, no, uh, <laughs> there is no link to male and female and titles. Thank you, Denise, for your comment there. But let's have a look at those uh, these poll results. And Sam, I'm going to come right. back to you again if I can. Nothing, 70%. Is that a surprise to you in the current world we're living in or is that a little bit disappointing?
4: Do you know what? I actually think... Throughout the cost of living crisis, we've got to remember that employers are also going to be feeling the pinch. It's sure. not just employees, it's employers. So, yes, it's unfortunate, but it doesn't come as a surprise to me, if I'm completely honest, Nick. I was expecting that, really. Um, everyone's trying to claw back a bit this year, aren't they?
1: Indeed. Well, maybe we'll see that that voucher statistic rise on the end of this, uh, this show, now that people are a little bit more familiar with what we can and cannot gift. I personally am a big fan of that secret Santa idea of giving all your employees a little gift at the start of the the year under the gifting rules But whether or not the payroll people that are listening to this can uh, encourage or persuade their business owners do the same is another another question entirely well, let's jump into the next subject we've got a, a number of questions that are, that are coming in at the minute in relation to holiday pay which Simon's just um, given us a bit of an overview with um, I'm going to run through the questions first if we can because I think it does tackle some of the topics in our s- subject areas anyway uh, first one comes in from Anne it says our HR department are telling us that we do not need to adhere to the average holiday legislation because it is low risk we are a large employer but we do pay overtime and quarterly commissions. Are they correct in saying it would be low risk uh, and not uh, not to make holiday pay on average earnings? I'm probably slipping slightly into the legal disclaimer we discussed at the start of the show here in the advice that we give. Um, So I'm not sure who to hand this out to. Probably give a similar response to myself. I'll come
2: to you on this one, Richard. Um, No, they're completely wrong. It's 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 the rule. The rules are the rules under the (laughs) Employment Rights Act. It will only take one employee to um, I guess push the boat on this one. Um, But also, the bigger issue for employers, especially after the Brazil case, is if they have been using 12.07%, there could be back calculations due, and that's a really important area as well. So, no, it is very, very important, um, and it's certainly not something that you can push to one side, I think most people would agree.
1: What I'm going to say here, then, is remember, everyone gets a copy of this recording at the end of the show. So by all means, use that response from Richard. Send that to your HR team. Remind them just how important it is. It's not you saying it. It's an expert panel on payroll Questions. I'm reminding you that it's the law and that's what you need to do.
2: There's Uh, probably between 20 and 30 articles on the whole subject, probably in the last six months alone. Um, So if they want some reference, it's really not that hard. Just look up Leslie. Leslie Brazil then you'll find plenty of support, shall we say, I think. That's what we're here for.
1: Expert to give people reassurance. Go on, Simon.
2: Yeah, I think the challenge is
3: uh, individually, uh, you're quite right. It's a problem because uh, an individual has to make a claim within three months of the underpayment, and then that's linked going back to two years. So at the moment, it's an IT route. However, as Richard's suggesting, The unions know about this. In fact, their barristers were present in the case. So if you've got unionized and you're saying a large employer Uh, that the unions get hold of it, you'll have a collective case against the company. That leads to other activity, and we are seeing that increasingly. They catch you one thing, they'll catch you on the lot. National minimum wage will be another area, they'll start to catch you. And also, it's an element of thinking about the future. So at the moment, national minimum wage is policed by Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs. They have, what I'm going to say, ultimate power. Almost, and it's criminal in relation to national minimum wage. So the bosses are potentially facing criminal sanction and a criminal record. Generally, those uh, crimes are committed by companies as opposed to individuals, but individuals could be named. That is the future of holiday pay because the government have approved and are going ahead with what they call the single enforcer. We don't know when. It could be next year. It could be 24. It could be 25. But the enforcer is on their way. When the enforcer is on their way and in power, you only need one person to complain. Now, at the moment, if one person takes you to the industrial tribunal, the ruling relates to that one person. If one person takes you to the enforcer and they come in and find something, that person may actually be okay, but they'll enforce it for everyone else that isn't. So that's the potential risk that's heading with HR departments that need to wake up to is actually this could be just uh, uh, someone who's out to cause problems. But actually, everything is OK. But we found 200 other people that aren't. You have to pay them now and a penalty. And that's the potential future risk. There you
1: go. I'm going to throw that up. And not say... apart. Very nice. Go on, uh, Andy.
3: Yes. Oh, you got, yeah. That's going to apply to
1: the pensions
5: as well, because if you're underpaying holiday pay, you're underpaying pensions. And if you aren't paying the right amount of holiday pay and it's got to be backdated, that means you're going to have to backtrack to what should have been paid in that week when they went on holiday. And they might, therefore, be automatically enrolled at an earlier date. And then you'd need to look at all the pension contributions from that earlier date of automatic enrolment. So you're going to be, read. so do it right. So start putting the April 20 holiday calc and get those calculations correct. Because if someone whistle blows to us, we'll do the same thing. If they say my holiday pay is wrong and I should have been automatically enrolled, had I been paid the, in, the correct amount of holiday pay, had I been put into the scheme, we'll say, well, actually, that's probably true for everyone else. Please go back to your staging date, many years, and look to see what, what should have been paid, or oh, to April 20, which is when the, the rules changed. if you were doing the right thing prior to that. Do you see know I mean? So it's not just, all the regulators, chances are, will do something if there's an impact, because tax, national insurance, etc. will be Definitely. wrong as well.
0: Have you ever asked yourself, how can I recruit payroll staff effectively? Please don't give up on your recruitment project just yet. Here at JGA Payroll Recruitment, we appreciate the difficulties associated with attracting, recruiting and retaining top payroll talent. We also understand just how costly a poor payroll hire can be. JGA Recruitment are a niche payroll recruitment agency who will partner with you to resource payroll candidates who will improve both the accuracy and efficiency of your payroll department. Contact us today on 01727 800 377 or visit jgarecruitment.com to find out more.
1: Had a, a nice comment back already saying thank you experts. I mean that's what we're here for. If you've got questions, put them in the chat box. If you've got concerns, this is where we can uh, we can answer your questions in real time you can get the recording and pass it back on to your HR departments if you need to. I've had a couple of questions from the same individual here. So I'd like to ask the first question it relates back to that holiday pay. Um, well, we get this a lot in payroll question time. So there's definitely still a lot of confusion around this. It says, good afternoon. My question is IT related and was wondering if the software accommodates for the 5.6 weeks AFC calculations for casual hour staff. Secondly, do you have a facility to pro rata holidays for part year joiners who work term time only part time?
3: Okay. Um, Well, I can only speak for our own software, um, Nick. I can't necessarily speak for others, but can you handle 5.6 weeks entitlement? Yes. And what's the entitlement for casual workers or those that work irregularly if they're under contract? Uh, The entitlement is 5.6 weeks minimum. It's the same for everyone. There's no difference even if you don't if you only gave them work for one day and you retain them as an employee for the full year. What's their entitlement? Their entitlement is 5.6 paid weeks of the average and the average would be one day's pay. So you have to pay them for an extra 5.6 days. Uh, That's the requirement of the regulations always has been to be honest apart from the averaging being the old 12 week averaging. Uh, And again, ignoring zero pay weeks because the law requires you to ignore it. So can software do that? Yes. The challenge is sometimes how employers want to do it. So there's an element of what is the entitlement? And you need to know what the entitlement is. Otherwise, how do you know you've paid 5.6 weeks? So the base guidance on entitlement is what's their entitlement? Their entitlement is 5.6 weeks. What does that mean in days and hours? the Bayes sort of response to that is, who knows, but it has to equal 5.6 weeks. So you can come up with a basis possibly, but you can't think, well, if I work this out and it comes out with this math and I based it on 5.6 weeks and that gives me 12.07 percent, which is in effect what the 12.07 percent did. And it's sort of, well, what did you pay? Does that pay equal 5.6 weeks? Oh, it doesn't. You've broken the law. So whatever you come up with, it has to equal 5.6 weeks. Can, um, the SD work software offer solutions that assist with that? It absolutely can. But the challenge sometimes is, um, moving from, um, the viewpoint of what the entitlement is, because some are trying to declare it in hours. How do you know what the hours are of the variable? Uh, some in other, but days is easy. Weeks is easy. Hours is easy if they have contract hours. If they don't have any contract hours, hours will not work unless you come up with an average basis. But even then, how do you work out what the entitlement is? Because it keeps them going up and down and the entitlement is fixed. Now, can it deal with proration? So the rules on proration for joining is it's one twelfth So you're entitled to one twelfth of 5.6 weeks for each month you're employed or part month. So it's not days, it's not hours, it's, tw- it's one twelfth. And if you leave, it's then based on 101 over 365, uh, for the days employed in that year, including weekends, including days you don't work. it Doesn't matter is when did they start? When did they leave? three over 365. Now, the twelfths are rounded to half days. This this is where it gets really complicated with employment law. The twelfths are rounded to half days or full days. That's the requirement of the law. Even if you're doing hours, you then have to apply the hours to those days. Um, You can't round it on hours. It's rounded on half day or day. And on uh, levers, it's rounded to tenths of a day. So just be aware of that. The kind of software deal with those sorts of things. Uh, Probably, but actually most people don't know that's what they're meant to do, and so have instructed something else. But can facilities be made that uh, bring that in? Will lots use Excel? Yeah, they will. Uh, The major complication on holiday pay is the holiday pay is for pay up to last Saturday. Okay, so if I take leave today, you're meant to include all my work up to last Saturday. And you may say, well, that's a bit odd, because we haven't paid you for last saturday and uh, I, I would say uh, i don't know what your view is sam on this but i think the base response to that is it's not my problem that's your problem
4: yeah and a lot of service providers so payroll professionals working in a bureau environment they will get a fixed amount at the end of a pay period and their client will say pay this so mm. the client may have the weekly data but a lot of bureaus do not have that weekly breakdown in order for them to do the average weekly earning calculation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a key point to stress is the 12.07%, Nick, essentially allowed people to accrue annual leave for every hour or every day that they work, whereas yeah. that's not the case. That's not how the legislation ever wanted to it to work. If someone is employed, regardless of whether they are working or not, you accrue annual leave for every day that you are employed. And that's the key thing to stress. So, as Simon said, someone could be on a payroll for 12 months. They've only worked one day. They're still entitled to the 5.6 weeks for that year.
1: Great. Fantastic. That's really clear. And I'm impressed Simon did all those calculations without scripts. So uh, experts indeed. Well, thanks to <laughs> everybody here. Right. I, I'll be honest, it's hard for me to, to keep up and uh, I, I don't process payroll. So I, hats off to everyone that actually does and understands all of that. Um, is there a crystallization period for claiming
4: back pay? Let me come to you for that one, Sam. So don't know if I've interpreted the question correctly but for claiming back pay so if an employee was to to raise this with an employment tribunal and say my employer hasn't paid me correctly Simon mentioned this earlier they've got three months from that underpayment to make a claim that claim can then be backdated for two years however if there is a gap of three months or more between two periods of annual leave that that employee has taken, that two-year rolling period stops. So, for example, let's say I take annual leave in November and I took annual leave in September. There's less than three months in between those two dates. So, both of those instances would need to be recalculated at any back pay owed but let's say prior to September, I didn't take any annual leave. Um, let's say it was February, not that anyone would last going from February to September with no annual leave, but let's say there's that, there's that gap of more than three months. My employer would only have to recalculate my November and my September's annual leave because they are connected. So hopefully I interpreted that question correctly and that would be the answer maximum two years.
3: Yeah and the exception to that and we've had a case recently which is the Pimlico Plumbers again they appear regular don't they yeah. is if you haven't if you've denied holiday pay altogether the 2-year limit doesn't apply so it then falls under statute limitations so if someone's taken leave and you paid them nothing then it's not an underpayment of holiday pay it's a failure to pay holiday pay and that's a different claim because you paid them nothing so it wasn't the wrong amount it was no amount and that came under the Pimlico plumbers recent case where the Pimlico plumbers attempted to apply the two-year stop and the court disagreed they said that limitation doesn't apply because you paid zero
1: right now Makes we're just we're gonna we are going to jump into these uh, festive consideration points on the slide in just a moment but of course this is your show audience. So do keep the questions coming in. We want to make sure we answer your questions as our first priority. Coming to you, Richard, here for the last one for the moment. Um, I've been asked to gross up a bonus um, payment as part of a settlement agreement to a small number of employees. The employees are basic rate taxpayers. However, the total value of the package will push their monthly earnings into the higher slash additional rate of tax. Which percentage rate of tax should I use in the gross up calculation?
2: No, thanks. Um well, the <laughs> applicable rate the, the applicable yeah. rate the cumulative earnings at that point. Yeah. You can't okay, you can't man. say you know, I have been joined because <laughs> of I <of, of, laughs> that need today. Um no, it's applicable to the rate they reach. There is no no rule to say, well, they would have been at twenty percent, so we'll only charge twenty yeah. percent. If the amount takes them into the forty percent threshold, there's a forty percent liability on the income because you're still giving yeah. cash money king, cash is king as uh, sam quite rightly said earlier on basically yeah. so uh, it,
3: yeah. it's a really complicated calculation nick and it's one that uh, the sd work solution automatically does for you
1: there you go <laughs> a it's, a, it's, there a mi-
3: it's a mixture of zero 20 and 40 percent and it'll work it out so there's element of work out what the liability was without it, work out what the liability is with the amount, and you'll get a tax in NI, and then you, in effect, have to keep on adding it until it changes by nothing. So it can go through a number of iterations, and it's called grossing up, and you'll come to a value. But you may find that your tax liability that you're actually covering an employer may be increasing the monies by 60, 70%
2: okay and because every uh, last, time you
3: pay it there's a liability
1: sure last one and just i, I really want to get clarity here so apologies i'm gonna i have gonna bring this up again i want to make sure that all the audience are fully familiar just can someone please explain one more time why if someone only worked for one day but was on the payroll for a full year they would get a full year's allowance so we're going to holiday here yeah sure.
2: so, so you can probably say the same statement again about
4: yeah Yeah, it's um, about it's about when someone is employed from and to so if someone is employed for a full calendar year they are entitled to a full calendar year's worth of annual leave entitlement (laughs) and in simon's um, example earlier if someone works for one day and their entitlement to annual leave is 5.6 weeks when you take the average earnings you're going to be paying them 5.6 days worth of pay using that average weekly earning criteria so for example term time only staff in an academic environment you know you don't want to be ending their contract at the end of the academic year make them a lever bring them back on in September again because then you've got employment rights issues um, you know it, it's it's unfortunately just one of those things like Richard said to the HR team it's the law and unfortunately it's just yeah. gotta be one of those things that are done and it's the joy of being an employer right
2: yeah. a, if a you want to scenario I was gonna say especially in retail yeah. um where they may have staff who just work during the holidays so they they're from Newcastle but they're a university in London every time they come home the shop takes them on, but they, because of the aggravation of taking them on and taking them off again, they just leave them on the payroll all year. Well, they're employed for the year, so they are by rights as Sam quite rightly said, accumulating holiday. It's I, a danger. Think-
1: the individual here has yeah. just said, to be fair, I think it's been an admin error, but we do have someone that has only worked one day and been employed for a full year. Hence, it's a live example. So there we go. Hopefully we just answered that. Well, let's jump yeah. into <laughs> the slide then. Seasonal workers, new starter checklist, emergency 0T1 codes. Uh, Sam, I wonder if you could give us a bit of an, uh, an overview of what we're referring to here.
4: Yeah, my interpretation of that is if you've got new people joining you um, over the Christmas period, then you need to be getting them to complete a new starter checklist. If people aren't completing that new starter checklist, then you need to be still ticking Statement C within your software, but you'll be applying a zero T tax code on a week one, month one basis. So really, you're wanting to get those individuals to be completing a new starter checklist so you can be using the correct tax code for them. Um, That's my interpretation of what that means on the slide, Nick. I don't know if anyone else has (laughs) got anything to add, Simon. (laughs)
3: Yeah, I think that's correct. Now, the HMRC Chief Digital Information Office is concerned by the number of uh, C0T1s being returned. There is actually an obligation on the employer really to get the starter checklist. Don't wait for P45s. Get every new starter to uh, tick that checklist. Otherwise, they're paying tax on every penny they earn, and lots of these people don't actually owe any tax. Also, that impacts the Universal Credit claims as well. Uh, which means that actually the state may be paying more than they need to because they've paid a tax liability they don't have, which they'll get back. And you could say, well, that's a good thing for them, isn't it? Except taxpayers fund those overpayments. So we're all paying that in our tax rises that we're getting. So there is an element of get it right. Um, so if anybody joins you, you've got to do right-to-work checks. Get the starter checklist get them to ticket it's their first job their only job because they've left another or it's a second job and if it's on a second job they'd be taxed at br so um i I think there's examples that uh they're only actually seeing is that 95 percent of new starters uh being received by hmrc are not p45 starters so there's probably a concern of why And the other aspect is you're probably finding that for some employers, 80 percent of them, 90 percent of them have no starter checklist. So the HMRC CDIO office position will be why. And of course, that's critical across Christmas because retail, et cetera, will be getting tens of thousands of people. Uh, joining as shop workers or postal uh, fill-ins, etc. across the Christmas period, parcel deliveries uh, to deliver all our presents to us. So get the starter checklist before first payday as well. After first payday is a waste of time. You can't send them on FPS; it doesn't let you. So before first payday, get the starter checklist.
1: Right. I've got a question that's coming for you, Richard, here. Uh, Sick pay question. So uh, still very festive and we're keeping the festive theme going. We have an employee who is currently off sick. The company, however, closes at Christmas and everyone takes it off and the business isn't actually open. Will, therefore, the employee be able to choose if they get statutory sick pay or holiday pay for this period? Or does the company just go ahead and pay the holiday pay since it's a compulsory closure and the employee will be better off for it?
2: Oh, I think the compulsory closure won't matter here. I think it's the employee's choice. Um principally an employee can go on holiday at any point in time during sickness, but the twenty eight weeks if they're sick, they're sick. Um so principally it's it's not completely you can't I'm am i I'm guess I'm right in this one that you can't make holiday leave compulsory. Um or can you when it's contractual? I don't think you can. Um so I think we, the, yeah.
3: the An employer can give notice for someone to take holiday, but you can't give notice for someone who's on sick. And you can't enforce holiday on someone who's sick. But if they're agreeable, you can pay holiday.
2: Yeah, yeah it has to be
3: agreed. Agreement.
1: You're better off saying you're no longer sick the day the Christmas holiday starts. And then when it comes back in again, you say you're sure. sick again, right?
3: <laughs> so, yes. Yeah, yeah no in effect. So so generally, uh, sickness during, holiday during sickness relates to zero pay periods. So you've exhausted your um, sickness entitlement. But you can't yeah. get SSP and holiday pay. You can get one or the other, but you can end it by agreement, but it's mutual agreement. You can't enforce it either way. It's not an obligation either way. It's where both parties agree.
1: Uh, Simon, a question for you that's come in in to the SD work system in particular, but uh, just some clarification. Um, uh, For term time employees, I'm not sure the 112th method would work. I normally pro rata over the actual working days for the first year. Would the SD work system be able to accommodate this? The reason being, my question is for pro rata holidays for a new starter that starts mid-year. So would the software calculate this or would it need to be done manually? Because you said it should be done via the 112th method.
3: Well, it depends. The, the payroll won't look after entitlement, but the HR solutions may. And they'll do whatever you ask them to do. But uh, the point at the beginning that it's different for term time people is not correct. Term time people are entitled to five point six weeks and the entitlement is one twelfth for each month employed. The fact that they don't work in July makes no difference. You still get one twelfth of the annual entitlement or August, I should say, depending on whether you're Scottish or, or English.
1: So the question is, would it work on actual day calculation? Does that makes sense.
3: It's got no relevance to it, I'll repeat. Entitlement is how long you're employed. So if you're employed for the full holiday year, entitlement is 5.6, and the proration is on how many months. Okay. It's not about work. It's about how long have you been employed.
1: Okay, super.
3: Uh, last Even but not least... Even for term time workers.
1: So this
4: session, do, I mean, do you I agree
3: with that, seconds. Sam? I mean, Sam, yeah. I think...
4: Yeah, I do completely um, agree. Regardless of whether you're working or not, if you're employed, you've got a year's annual leave entitlement of 5.6 weeks.
3: And this is the whole purpose of the Brazil case, really. It wasn't about 1207 because Mrs. Brazil used to get 12 week averaging earnings. It's about the whole concept of term time workers. If they're employed for a year, it's 5.6
1: weeks. Super fantastic. I've had a question that's come in from Ben that says, Should employees treat the 1.6 weeks granted by the UK equally to the four weeks granted by the EU? Yeah,
0: that's a great
4: to, question. Yeah, in regards to the average weekly earnings, you don't have to include the 1.6 weeks. You only have to include four weeks to consider overtime bonus and commission payments. However, it doesn't stipulate what days makes up that 1.6 weeks so it could be that for all the bank holidays you decide we won't pay the average earnings we'll just pay the contractual pay for that day but if you are a company that's open for the bank holidays you may want to choose another 1.6 weeks that you don't pay that uplift always um, and it goes without saying employers can pay that extra 1.6 weeks as an average, if they so wish. You can always go above and beyond what the legislation stipulates. Just don't break what the legislation says. <laughs> okay. And
3: there's always potential um, risk for the future as well, Nick. So the, the reason they'll state that is the uh, rulings on overtime and commission are European court rulings. So, the European Court Justice or European in relation to Regulation 13 working time regulations. So, you could say it doesn't apply. Now, Bayes doesn't say it doesn't apply. The thing is, the rulings are not about the additional 13.a regulation earnings. Now, if someone took an employer to court on Regulation 13a, I guess the Bayes' thought is the court may actually rule that that's the same rule for them as well. But so far, no court has ruled on the 13A. entitlement. Does that make sense? So most employers would just treat the 5.6 weeks the same. That's what the guidance suggests from Bayes. But the European court rulings relate to Regulation 13, four weeks.
1: Great. So we're going to jump into the autumn Statement. Uh, we can move that slide along. While we wait for that to come across, we've got a, say, another Nick, go on. Uh, well, I, I just think
5: we're talking about seasonal workers. Obviously, they're going to be employed over Christmas. Well, but you could, as an employer, use postponement to postpone their automatic enrollment assessment yeah. rather than putting them into the scheme and then they'd come out straight away because they want to opt out or only get one month's worth of contribution. So postponement could be used um, as a way of in the individual being assessed for automatic enrollment um, and it's up to th- up to maximum three months from their start date Um before you'd have to assess them that's all really just uh, there's advice on the website
1: you know. Fantastic let's jump into the statement I'm going to start with a poll here as well and uh, this is really to help dictate where we go with this in the new year particularly as we can see from today lots of questions <coughs> around holiday pay in particular Uh, What topics would you like us to discuss in the next edition of Peril Question Time, which is going to be in January. There is not a December edition, so uh, trying to get the information in now. Uh, EU rulings, minimum wage, holidays, redundancies or other. So while you're putting your answers in there, that will really help us shape the conversation for January. I do have a question that's come in from Beth. Um, We'll ask our panel here. We have a staff member receiving PHI sick payments paid at 60%. The employee has requested holiday payments and HR have agreed to pay their holiday at 40% rather than 100% uh, because PHI is paid by the insurance company. Is this legal and fair?
4: Um, um, I'm happy to answer from what I would have done in uh, from an operational point of view. Um, essentially, if that person is having a holiday pay top-up, then they're going to be deemed to be sick and on holiday at the same time. So as long as they're happy to be using two lots of absence entitlement at once. um, Whether it's fair, I, I I would say that that's fairly fair. Whether it's legal, you would need to check and you'd need to double check what the stance is from the PHI provider as to whether there's any clause that stop the employer paying a top up couldn't imagine that there would be, but it's always best to double check with the PHI provider.
1: Sounds like sound advice to me. Anything the panel would add or are we could to get to these poll results?
3: No, I'd go along with that, Nick, to a certain extent. It's similar with the CJRS and Coronavirus Job Retention Scheme. When the government were funding 80%, the employer would have had to have topped up the extra 20 for any periods of holiday. Uh, just thinking that sort of aligns a little bit. Yeah.
1: Super. Fantastic. Okay, well, let's have a look at those poll results. Oh, wow, pretty split here, which is probably a major surprise. Redundancies. 30%, holder pay 28%, not surprised with the questions we've had today. Uh, Minimum wage, 18%, EU rulings, 23%. I've had a comment as well uh, from Evelyn that says, please, please, on the other category, can we do something on salary sacrifice schemes as well? Just to give you all some reassurance, that's a subject there that we've all discussed uh, externally as well. We're hoping to bring that up into a a future PQT. So um, any surprises there, uh, Simon?
3: Uh, No, they all sound uh, fairly solid. And I think even some of the elements of the autumn statement may help on uh, one of those items, at least, but uh, an effect to the others. Yeah, I agree.
1: Well, let's jump into the autumn statement. Conscious time. time. Um, we've got a number of things to talk about. Income and inheritance tax thresholds have been frozen for two more years. Dividend allowances have been changed. Capital gains, increased pensions and benefits. Uh, let's start with Andy. I'm going to bring him into the conversation. Andy, let's talk about the uh, increases to pensions. And benefits to begin with, and we'll work uh, from back to front on this one, just to pull you in, keep you awake, and uh, give us a bit of an update on the pension side of things.
5: Thank you. I am um, awake. It's good to know. Um, obviously, <laughs> yes, yeah, good did. that the triple lock and all those sort of things are being looked into and 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 effective. Um, so that's good. Obviously, everything else seems to be frozen or continue to be frozen in terms of lifetime allowance, annual allowance. Um, don't know what's going on with the thresholds, automatic enrollment, um, lower, upper thresholds and trigger. Um, I've been in touch with DDP just to find out what it is. Obviously, they've got to do their analysis. There's a new pensions minister now, Laura Trott. Um, so uh, she'll obviously need to get her head around her, all these sort of things. So hopefully we'll hear soon in terms of what the AE thresholds are. Maybe they'll remain frozen as well, as everything else seems to have been done. But that's down to DWP. And as soon as I hear, I'll be communicating those things out to the world of payroll. Um, yes, there, there we go. That's my I'm little listening. bit. Of
1: right. I'll come then from left to right. We've got a few things to pick up on here. So I'm going to start with yourself, Richard. If you can take uh, income and inheritance tax and bring us up to speed.
2: Yeah, no. So obviously, in principle, we already had um, a selection of freezes. To use make my own words up today, um, a selection of frozen items, just like Iceland, um, in respect of uh, Control for 2016, uh, 2026. Sorry, that were already in place. So really, it's just an extension um, of a further two years, um, and it really is that stealth taxation. So principally, I think the government had the option of increasing taxation, which is certainly not something it wanted to do. Um, instead, the statement was always you won't earn less than you did last year. Um, but the principle now is that there'll be no review in 2026. It's now 2028. And I guess the, the, the big further change was built on the back of the uh, amendment of the primary threshold. So obviously the primary threshold aligned to tax anyway back in July. So it was a very easy decision, I guess, for the uh, Chancellor therefore to freeze NI as well. So that's really the key variation, um, is that NI is now frozen too, where we may well have seen a review or increase in certain thresholds, um, and everything now is a further two years on. Um, For me, it's wonderful because it means I don't have to update three quarters of my material every year for about the next four years. Um, But obviously for the individual, the the stealth taxation is on the grounds that the the likelihood is in the next five years you'll earn more money but the principle is is usually you would see that increase to either the purse allowance or the thresholds that would therefore limit the increased taxation on that which they now obviously won't see so fantastic i think uh,
1: very well put uh bring it over to yourself then sam there's uh dividend allowances being cut from 2000 to 1000 next year I Wonder if you can bring us up to speed
4: yeah, so it's, dividends might be something that not all payroll professionals have to deal with, but those that are working, especially in a payroll bureau environment within an accountancy firm, you may need to know that holistic overview of all the taxes. So following on from the inheritance tax, the, the dividend allowance is then going to be reducing from 2000 to one next year, as it shows on the screen, and then it's going to half again from 2024. Um Following on from that, it kind of fits that I stick with the capital gains. So the tax free allowances for capital gains will reduce from, again, the values that you can see on the screen. So it's reducing to six thousand for twenty three, twenty four. And similar to the dividend, it's halving again for the following tax year. So then it will reduce to three thousand for twenty four, Fantastic.
1: And the capital gains, CGT annual exemption has been cut from 12,300 to 6,000 from 2023. Simon, I wonder if you can bring us up to speed.
3: Yeah, Sam's just covered that one, Nick. But um, I'm happy to cover the benefit elements because those were, I think, oh. revealed. Is it yesterday morning? So s yeah. has risen by the 10.1%. So the rate will be 172.48 for payments from the 2nd of April 2023. So s p up significantly. The other angle is on SSP. Uh, it's slightly different. So I, um, I think it's slightly more than 10.1%, but they'll have used that and rounded it. So the SSP weekly rate is rising to £109.40 from the 99 pounds 35 i don't think we've received the daily table confirmations because they do some funny roundings on it don't they at times
2: but an extra 2p over 10.1 simon it's uh, exactly
3: yes it's not quite
2: the same is it
3: so it's yes. a little bit more than 10.1% on the SSP, although it's been criticized for many years of being so low and not keeping pace with, um, well, certainly national minimum wage rises or anything else is that. It? So it's been seen as a bit of a paltry sum, especially for, uh, during the COVID period where people weren't getting CJRS or were dependent on uh, sickness pay that uh, they felt hammered.
1: Right, and before we jump into the um, the last bullet point on this, I so just was um, just to remind people that they weren't, you know, maybe they've made changes. Uh, the IR35 changes that were announced yeah. have been reversed. I wanted to if you just make sure that there's pure clarity on where we stand with R35. Um, I wonder if you can just bring us up yes. to speak with that as well, if you we can.
3: Well, in out in out.
1: Take it all about. about. Yes, yeah. uh,
3: certainly so. So yes, uh, there probably was very heavy lobbying. Uh, Because there's uh, quite a heavy lobby group on IR35 hated because, of course, these people pay more tax than anybody else. Um, Whereas in reality, I guess it's been discovered that actually they don't. And they're probably uh, benefiting from the dividend allowance as well. So, um, yes, uh, Liz and Quasi announced that IR35 would go uh, and remove the burden. And promptly, uh, within days, Jeremy Hunt announced that it wasn't. Uh, So it's back in. Uh, So it stays. IR35 applies to private business with 250 or more employees. If you've got someone that looks like a worker, um, uses your equipment, etc., uh, but you're paying them as a contractor, then maybe they're a bit of a deemed employee, and uh, and uh, they're not been declaring their income uh, is the historic position. I'm being saying this all with a bit of tongue in cheek, but uh, they're probably you're probably paying them 80 to 100,000 pounds. And for some reason, they're declaring to HM Revenue and Customs that they only earn uh, 12,570 pounds a year. So where's the other money going? Uh, And uh, therefore, they're making you as uh, the engager of that contractor to collect tax and national insurance on the payment, minus any uh, expenses or VAT. Um, So that's continuing. It's not gone away. It's staying.
1: Right. And a freeze on national insurance contributions, Richard.
2: Yes. So as has already been the case of taxation, um, it's just moved into national insurance as well. And as I said, really, the tipping point for that was July. I guess there is a small positive, and that is that the lower earnings limit will stay at £123 rather than going up annually. So principally, it would mean that more people. Over time, we'll go into um, eligibility uh, for things like sick and parental. Um, but again, you know, we're we're in a world where, principally through stealth or not, there will be more NI liability purely on the grounds that income's increased. Um, I guess the big variation is obviously the removal of the health and social care levy. Um, the bigger winner, therefore, is obviously the um, Type C. Um, so, those who are working after state pension age won't be coming into that. Um, but otherwise, it, it, it now becomes like for like in relation to its impact through ta- the tax freeze.
1: Yep, we've had a, a question that's come in as well. Do we know when statutory neonatal leave and pay may come into force?
3: um yeah, yeah, consultation. I mean, I think meetings in a week or two, isn't it? But uh, mm. not before 24. Not before 24.
1: Okay. Uh, 20 no, so it, it's
3: yeah. not. It's uh, certainly been passed through, hasn't the initial phases? But the actual statutory payment bits have still yet to be done. So the government have voted. Well, it was a private members' bill that's actually been passed. So it now moves to future stages. But I think it's, it's still at least a year or two away.
2: So even when it was originally announced, it was never going to be before 2024 anyway. Um, it then became part of the employment bill that we've been waiting for since, was it 2018? So, yeah, it's uh, it's a moving target, I think. Yeah. Fantastic. Similar, Andy, I to say it's similar, Andy, though, with the changes to uh, auto enrolment rules as well, or has that got more set now, e.g. the removal of the trigger and also the re- the reduction in age?
5: Uh, we're still waiting on DUP to let us know when, um, but yeah, so mid-2020s, so 24, 25, 25, 26, 26, 27, round about then. Um, and will it be all done in one go, or will it be done in stages, you know? Um, so wait here. As my understanding is that DUP will consult before it goes ahead, and it has to be a pensions bill. So it'll have to go through an Act of Parliament to reduce the lower threshold to to be removed as opposed to going to nil. So when you see a pensions bill in Parliament, that will also give an indication perhaps that something's coming up. But it won't be uh, all of a sudden. It will will be fully aware of when it's going so to be plenty of time to put things in place.
3: I'm just, just thinking, Andy, I guess they could do a statutory uh, instrument which just sets the lower has zero could they so not remove it just set it at zero in what theory do you think yeah they can remove it?
5: the way it's been spoken about um it would be removed right which you know, has implications in terms of no entire workers anymore everyone will have an employer contribution etc when it goes to nil um so yeah um, wait and see, really. But yes, yeah, so, so whether or not DWP will, for instance, consider reducing the lower threshold. They froze it last April um, or whether they'll keep it frozen. But obviously, if, if it went in one go, then that would be for a monthly person to be £520 now becomes pensionable, where it wasn't previously when you've got a scheme that only takes contributions from 520 the lower limit upwards. So the employer will, you know, there's budgeting to be done, the employer costs. But the government don't just do things without analysing everything. And, you know, so Treasury and everyone else gets involved as well as just DDP. So there will be a suitable period of time for us to know what's going on.
1: Um, I've had a question come in about next year, probably following on from our poll um will we be tackling the energy initiatives that were announced by the chancellor for 23 24 in the next edition of Payroll question time including the cost of living payments for people on household means tested benefits uh, pensioner households are going to receive an additional 300 pound cost of living payment and disability cost of living payments as well um i don't know, that's not my of expertise but um simon
3: um i missed that um apologies there.
1: Not, not to be answered now but for the new year will we be uh, bringing up the, um, will we will be able to discuss the energy initiatives discussed by the Chancellor and how that impacts the cost of living payments.
3: Oh yeah certainly, and I think there's an element of waiting for details but the April change will uh, drop so there is an intention to carry on um, but yeah we'll see where that goes.
1: Add that to the list, well let's have a look at some of our hot topics, one of them is we've already covered which is in relation to the IR35 appeal cancellation, um i don't know if there's any more information you want to give on the latest tax ni and minimum wage uh, bullet point we've got here i think that was um there's a few changes we haven't mentioned yet from autumn statement including yeah. sort of the new tax backers and things so simon i'll let you take the floor
3: uh, sure. So minimum wage is probably a significant one and may have more effect than some people think. I guess it depends on what the wage levels are, but uh, the national living wage rate has gone up 9.7 percent to £10.42. Uh, and, of course, the intention is, in a, by a couple of years' time, that the national living wage will drop to 21 well, they're kind of doing that already. So the 21, 22-year-old rate has risen to £10.18. So it's now only, uh, you know, 24 pence difference, is it? Um, uh, so they've raised that by 10.9%. So rather than just bring in a drop to 21, they're increasing the 21 significantly to catch up. So they're getting closer and closer. What's the impact and what's the relevance of that? And what's the consideration? Actually, I think a lot were caught out this year. I know it's been a challenge for some of our our client base, is the fact that they're operating uh, smart pensions, cycle schemes, childcare, all sorts of other flexible benefit schemes. And you can't sacrifice below national minimum wage. So now there may not be any cushion to pay for those sorts of things, flexing that people have done. So what are you going to do? So it's a consideration of that which consequently means that the employer is no longer saving the 13.8% either on those contribution values for those benefit provision. So you're going to stop them or you going to raise, uh, and I've seen a number of questions on social media, some of the others may have done, but it's sort of, well, you know, I'm a manager and I hold the keys and now if I'm not available and it goes to a staff member, then I've been putting up to 10.42, they get a pound extra for holding the keys temporarily whilst the manager or a supervisor isn't there and I only get uh, uh, £11. Uh, that means they get paid more than I do. And there's an amount of, so my employer should pay me more. So you get those. Differential arguments and there's an element of there's absolutely no legal requirement to pay you any more at all because you're above minimum wage. But uh, but you can see where all these things go and it leads to disquiet amongst the workers and workforce. And you may get those cases where actually those allowance top ups actually make a better off than the management um so see salary sacrifice is the big one i think flexible benefit yeah. schemes especially around pensions andy as well is that uh, mm. actually this rise may change the nature of employer contributions on salary sacrifice
2: yeah. yeah
5: it's a big rework you've got to look at it very carefully haven't you and that's I minimum mean, wage is not straightforward either it's not just a simple hourly thing you've got to work out the period thing so it's it's Yeah, you've got to convert people to normal contributions, yeah.
1: Super. And uh, back to you, Sam, uh, the permanent easement for payday on your FPS.
4: Yeah, so I can't remember exactly what date this was brought in, but essentially at Christmas, most companies, most employers will bring their payday forward. So people get paid prior to Christmas Day. HMRC made it a permanent easement that people can do that. But the key thing that employers need to be mindful of is for example, let's say your contractual payday is the 25th of the month, but this year you're deciding to pay on the 19th. On your FPS, you must report the payment date as the 25th of December. It must be the contractual pay date not your early pay date for the christmas period Um the reasons for that is it can have a huge knock-on effect to universal credits so it's really really important that employers remember to report their contractual payday even if they are paying earlier for christmas
1: Fantastic. And last, we had a little comment here, which links right back to our first slide on Christmas festivities. And come back to you, Richard, briefly. Uh, I would expect some employers have provided a cost of living payment to take priority over Christmas gifts. More of a statement rather than a question, but probably something you're seeing as well, I'd imagine, Richard.
2: Yes, it's very well, it's very it's been very common for about the last four months. Um, employers are doing whatever they feel they should do. But employers have got to realize that a cost of living payment is cash. I guess that's the really key aspect here. So somebody's got to pick up the tax and nick um in the class one environment. Um and also it's something else that we obviously came into, rather than just blanket bombing payments to people, understanding the effects of those payments on everybody who works for you. We mentioned earlier on people on Universal Credit um, who may not really want their salary to increase potentially um, because the impact could be losing more their benefits. So it's not something that can be, I guess, reactively um, jumped in on you need to consider your demographic. You need to consider what you're actually giving. You need to consider the effect that that's going to have on liability. I think is uh, really the key here. Right. And we've gone a full
1: circle. I'm sorry. Go on, Simon. You add a point.
3: Yeah and I think it's just an understanding that on we talked about the benefit implications their universal credit entitlements values will increase by 10.1% from April next year so there are Excellent. universal Appetition. credit increases
1: To reassure everyone in the new year, we will be talking about salary sacrifice. We're going to be talking about minimum wage, holidays, redundancies, EU rulings, and more. So, lots. Stay tuned for in January. We've had over 1,100 people this year join us for payroll question time. Been a fantastic 2022. It seems too early to be welcoming in 2023, but that's when we'll next be seeing you on PQT. So, I wish everyone who's on the show today, watching us live or watching us pre-recorded or post-recorded, just to say a huge wonderful and well great wishes for a wonderful Christmas and a wonderful 2023 new year and a huge thanks to our panel Richard George, Sarah Sullivan, uh, Simon Parsons and of course Andy Nichols and I wish you everyone a great festive break. Any questions of course put them into uh, the, the chat box before we leave and we'll try and answer those later on we've got a couple of few minutes we'll leave that chat box open uh, but otherwise we look forward to bring you all the next Peril question time in January. Thanks everybody.
0: Thank you so much for tuning in to the Payroll Podcast with Nick Day of JGA Recruitment. If you need help with a current payroll vacancy, then please get in touch with Nick and his team. All contact details can be found in the episode notes. In the meantime, to make sure you never miss a future episode, please subscribe to the show through any of your favorite podcast channels. Till next time.